My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Hi, and welcome to the KingCast, a show by Stephen King obsessives for Stephen King obsessives. My name is Eric Vespi, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, the whip-smart and staggeringly sassy Scott Wampler. Say hi, Scott. Hello, everyone. I'm Scott Wampler. That's not a very sassy reply, but but I'll, I'll let that pass. It You're wasn't. saving it for the for the show. Yeah, you got to build up the reserves. You don't want to like rush right into the sass. Come on. That's true. Now, we've been pretty blessed with a great variety of guests on the show, uh, but this is the first guest whose love of King was actually used against him in a court of law. For a lot of us, Stephen King's work has helped us through some tough times, and that's certainly true uh, with our guest today. You'll know him as one of the wrongfully convicted members of the West Memphis three case that was popularized by the fantastic paradise lost documentary series, as well as Amy Berg and Peter Jackson's West of Memphis. He's also an author of books like high magic, a guide to the spiritual practices that saved my life on death row and the upcoming angels and archangels constant listeners. Please welcome Damien Eccles to the show. Hello. Thank you guys so much for having me on to do this today. Oh, are you kidding? We're thrilled to have you here. Yeah, dude, like I remember, you know, I was a teenager, like a mid young teenager, whenever um, the Paradise Lost films came out. And I remember watching the first one and hearing them actually use, you know, your love of Metallica and you having Stephen King books in your house in court as evidence that you could have committed a, a terrible crime. And I remember think, thinking, going, they just described me. Like, if that's the evidence right. they have, they any, they could have come to my house. You know, both Scott and I have a very personal connection to to your plight. And, uh, and I, I really very much appreciate you coming on to talk to us about Stephen King in particular. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. But that does kind of make me think a little bit just about how much it has changed in the way people look at certain things, you know, back when I was a kid, I can remember like first discovering Metallica late eighties, early nineties, and just how dark and underground it seemed back then. And now you hear it on classic rock stations, <laughs> and, yep. you know, like Stephen King is, is producing or, or putting out these mainstream big Hollywood movies. Now uh, it's not like a dark little hidden pocket anymore. It's kind of amazing. And that's what the the Dark Tower series was to me, which is why I'm very excited that the title you chose is The Gunslinger. That's what you wanted to talk about because Stephen King's a best-selling author. You know, there's millions and millions and millions of books, you know, in circulation. Everybody's grandma had a copy of The Stand. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like it, it, it's not like he was he was crazy uh, unknown in, you know, uh, I don't know, like Clive Barker. I could understand people going, oh, man, that's a little, you know, deep and dark. But King was like a a popular author. And what's great about the dark tower is that amongst this super popular authors work, you had these like weird combos of fantasy and science fiction and horror and Western mythology that, uh, it seemed like the, the black sheep of his, of his work. Is that something you felt when you found? Absolutely. When you found absolutely. I can remember I found that book at like a little secondhand bookstore, they were selling it for maybe like a dollar or something like this. And this was way back before, you know, the entire series. It seemed like it took forever between the first book and the second book. But after, <laughs> yeah. after he hit like maybe the <laughs> third book in the series and it picked up speed real quick, you know, how, how quickly he was putting them out. But I found that book and read it. I honestly, I reached a point where I thought he will never finish this series. This will be the only book in this series he ever writes. And there were times I read that thing. It did not even feel like you were reading a Stephen King book. You know, I would read it to the end and then immediately flip it over and start reading it again. All in all, and this will sound kind of crazy obsessive, but throughout my life, for various reasons, whether it was because I was locked in a cell in solitary confinement with nothing else to read or whether I was living in a state of poverty with no money to buy anything else to read, I actually read that book 33 times total. Oh, 
God. Yeah. Uh, Eric and I sort of fancy ourselves uh, Dark Tower experts, but <laughs> I have not read that book. <laughs> I've not read any of those books anywhere close to 33 times. You must be able to, can you, can you like, you know, not, not that you should, like, I'm not prompting <laughs> you, but could you, if, if called upon to do so, could you like quote, like whole verses from it? You know what I mean? No, pr- I probably could have at one time, but no, not anymore. When you were when you were incarcerated, you did you have access to all the books? I did, and that was you know you know honest to God, these books for me. The reason I, I chose the Dark Tower, the reason I want to talk about it, and kind of the whole series in general, like by extension, those books when I was in, in prison, you know, that's when he really started picking up steam and re- and putting them out mm. pretty regularly so that I was, it gave me something to look forward to number one, but it also like in the time period that he put those out, you know, I was locked up for almost 20 years. So a good chunk of that time he's putting these books out t- to a point where I felt like these, these were people that I had in a very real way grown up with the characters mm-hmm. in these books. You know, these felt like people who kept me company in some of the darkest hours of my life. That's, that's how meaningful these people were to me. You know, I can remember when I got to the very last, the the end of the last book and you know how it kind of ends pretty much the way it began for me. Whenever I read that, when I came across the way it ended, I honest to God, I, I felt like this really, really deep, profound sense of horror at what Roland was about to experience again. You know, it's like you've been on this journey with this man, with these people for all these years, through all of these foreign lands, coming in contact with all of these different cultures, having all of these different adventures. And then at the end, you see that it was kind of all for nothing in, in in an odd way it really had a, a profound kind of emotional and psychological impact on me that lingered for probably two to three weeks after i finished that last book the first time yeah wow yeah i mean there's a there's there's a weird psychological thing about it because roland and his quartet his multiple quartets go through so much pain uh, uh, and like r- the whole story of Roland Deschain is that he is, he loses everything. He gains, he gains what he's, he's seeking without realizing it and then loses it in um, sacrifice almost to his ultimate obsession. And, but there is also something kind of beautiful about getting an, a second chance like that. That's what the end of the, the series is it, the end of the, the, the wheel of Ka, the end of the cycle is, is about giving Roland another chance at getting it right this time. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess for me, the thing that was scary about it is you, you kind of came away with the feeling that it wasn't just a second chance that maybe this was his 10,000th yeah. chance and chance and for sure had to go through it over and over and over. It, it makes you tired. <laughs> it, yeah. It, you know, it, it affected me to such a degree <clears throat> that first book and subsequently the rest of the series was such a part of the fabric of my internal world, you know, through childhood. And, and especially when I was in prison, like I said, with these characters almost keeping me company, some of the very first things I ever did when I got out of prison, you know, how in the books it goes back and forth from Roland's world to uh, New York City in right. different time periods. But one of the very first things I did is I went and I sought out all the landmarks uh, that he talks about in those books, you know, like the Hammerskjöld Plaza where the, the turtle yeah, statue yeah. is. Uh, I Right before I even, I went and, and sought out every place in the books that I could think to, to list down and went and visited all of them. Um, and even... W- you know, one of the first tattoos I got was the sigil of author Eld, uh, you know, from like the beginning and end or the beginning of the chapters, that little symbol they right. put. That's I, I got yeah, yeah. that tattooed on my left hand whenever I first got out just to kind of always have it with me. Yeah. I mean, again, like Scott said, we thought we were hardcore on this. <laughs> you, you, <laughs> yeah. You, you're, you're, yeah. You're, yeah. You're taking it to the next level. Uh, but of all the books, the gunslinger was the one that I read 
the most because um, when I started reading the Dark Tower, they had the those great um, the soft cover trade paperbacks that had all the Michael Whalen art was in the first one. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the first three were out. It was up to Wastelands. And um, and so I read those and I was obsessed with it. And then when every new book came out after that, Wizard and Glass, Wolves of the Kala, Song of Susanna and Dark Tower, I would reread from the beginning. So because of that, uh, I read the Dark Tower first, and then when I realized there were other books, I read the Dark Tower. Or sorry, the Gunslinger first. Then I realized there were other books, and I read the Gunslinger again, and then Drawing of the Three, and then Wastelands. And so I, every time I've you know a new book came out, I, I started from the beginning mm-hmm. again, which I guess in an odd way is one of the reasons why I love the ending as well to the series because you know that was my experience with the Dark Tower was. At, at the start of each new cycle for me in each new book release, I started at the beginning. But did it ever feel to you like the first book was almost separate from the rest of the series? Like for me, the first oh, book sure. always had a completely different energy and feel to it than the rest of the series did. Well, I mean, not, not only was he writing the, you know, like when he wrote that one, he was incredibly young. Right. You know? And so that, age versus experience and and maturity and all of those things would would impact that. He also wrote it as a series of shorts. So I mean that that <coughs> sure. that that initial run was um I think it was first published in 78 in a magazine called the Magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction was the first story uh the way station and it was uh you know it was essentially just him trying out his pulp muscle, right? He wanted to make like this pulpy you know, weird, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, mix of genres. And, and I think by uh, drawing of the three is when he goes, you know what, I can actually build this into right. my own mm-hmm. Tolkien style world, mm-hmm. right. Where I can, I can make this, you, you, uh, you know, build my own fantasy world in my style. Yeah. You're right. That first one's got, it, it goes so bonkers, like right from the beginning, like the massacre in Tull and the, the yeah. abortion that Roland performs with the gun. And, yeah. You know, it's, it's very like cold. It, yeah, and he's a cold character. Yeah. I mean the the <laughs> the book ends with uh, with him, you know, dropping a small child in well, into it's a, the in only, abyss. Yeah, it's the only it's the only novel where Roland is the only main character, right? Yeah. You know, like once you get into two, now you're talking about Eddie and Susanna and Jake, and um, you know, uh, uh, it it becomes a little bit more complicated but i agree with damien that the first one almost in my mind i almost i, I almost think of it as a prologue to the rest yeah. of the series yeah. Roland it is doesn't pulpy. even feel human in the first one right no he's he's a machine at that exactly. point. he's just like yeah. he's a terminator yeah he's operating on pure instinct and he's just like like a shark that yes. you know like a you know like a shark cannot stop moving or it dies that's Roland in the first book and you get a little bit of interplay with him and Jake, you know, in the back half of the book, but uh, it's mostly a one man show mm-hmm. and it's a, it's very cold and calculating. And um, I almost feel like when I recommend that series to people, I'm, I'm, I'm almost tempted sometimes to be like, well, start with two and then maybe come back to one as the prologue, you know, because uh the first one, I think, kind of turns people off sometimes when they. It, why They're though? Like, to a- me, it was the best one. Why do some people really? not like it? That's your yeah. favorite of all of yes. them. Yes, oh, I mean that's interesting. By, by such a wide margin that I can't even articulate it. Like I wish he would have maintained that like really cold, Terminator, non-human type feel that he had in the beginning. I like it, but I also like, you know, the first one is pulpy, as Eric said, Mm -hmm. but I think the second one enters a new era of pulp where it's, it's complicated and it's also, it's introducing like multiple genres to it, where the first one I would argue is mostly like a Western that's got some sci-fi elements to it. Yes. Once you get into into the second one, there's like fucking dimensional portals and, you know, um, you know, characters uh, who died who are maybe not dead yet, or I. Well, I guess that's the third one, but I do know what you, I do know what you mean. But I don't think they could sustain. I don't think he could have sustained that tone of the first book for a seven 
novel 8,000 page series. I agree. Absolutely. I mean, it would have been kind of like trying to maintain the tone of Hannibal Lecter from Silent right. of the Lambs, you know, the difference, the way he is in that one versus right. the rest of them, kind of the same thing. You've got that. It's distant. It's the distance, you know, we, we can't relate to them. So it makes them intriguing. Once you start mm-hmm. to be able to relate to the character in like a human way, it takes a, takes a little bit of that strangeness away from them. Well, something that I'll uh, stick up for like that. My, my hook into the series, the the thing that like made me a diehard fan, it is uh, the very beginning of drawing of the three. It is, it is, it's actually the bridge. It pretty much what what captivated me, and it's I love it so much. I have a framed uh, print of it, and like I'm looking at it right now, is the very end illustration in the Gunslinger of Roland sitting on the beach, right, and mm-hmm. the sun setting. And you can see the tower out vaguely outlined in the clouds as he's looking on at it. And I remember that captivating me as a kid. Uh, uh, well, as a, you know, I think I was in middle school when I, I read, read this for the first time. And, and then I found out there was a second book. And when I started it, it opens with this guy who he is good at, at, at uh, pretty much one thing. And that is shooting guns. And the, the book opens with his, fucking trigger finger getting bitten off yes right you're right yeah and yeah and, and that entire book is all and and that bite it becomes infected and he uh he spends the entire book dying and the it, it, that book is nothing but hey here's this guy i've given him all the power it's like introducing superman and then taking away his invincibility right right away right yeah. mm-hmm. it's like th- this is a guy you know he's still you know he has one hand he can shoot with you know and, and he's still a badass but you give this guy that's this uniquely equipped to to face this dystopian hellhole world you know that that he's faced with and and you instantly hobble him and and uh, i just thought that was such a fascinating thing to do and i'd never read anything like that i've never read you know anything that permanent for the people you're supposed to follow you know these heroes or whatever anti-heroes um and that just grabbed me so quickly and uh i don't know the, the 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 whole series is filled with little things like that and you know and i think that's why it's so endearing to me and why i'm I'm so attached to it. What did you feel whenever he lost those fingers? I literally reread it. I reread because I'm like, no, he he, I, I must have read that wrong. He probably just got bitten. Yeah, it's like, denial. It, yeah, it's like there's no way that it, I mean that. <laughs> like I said, it'd be like here's Superman. He's really good at flying, and now we're not. You know, now we're gonna take away his ability to fly in a world where he fucking needs to get away yeah. from everything. Not in a way where he can ever regain it either. It's just gone. Never, no, that's it. And I think, it's like, it just made me go, if they're doing that now at the beginning of the second book, and I now know that at that time there were three books, like, well, what else can they take away from this guy? I think I read the second one before the first one, because I remember, really? you know, when I, when I, grew, yeah, because when I grew up, my mom had all, you know, she was a Stephen King fan and would buy the books as they came out, you know, the, you know, the old school hardcovers, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, I would read them you know, pull them down off the shelf and read them. Uh, and uh, there was one of them, which was drawing of the three and it was the trade paperback. And every once in a while I would sort of bring that to her and be like, what is this about again? And she'd be like, eh, it's about like a cowboy. And, um, you know, and she would sort of have this like fucking, you know, crazy sort of, I, I, you know, I can't approximate whatever she said, but it was, you know, like sort of a, you know, a very twisted perception of what it was, but I was, I was intrigued by the cover and I loved it had pictures in it and I was a kid, you know? So, uh, that, that intrigued me. And I think eventually I read it and, and then I think I went back and I, I think I read it and then went to her and said, can, can you get me a copy of the gunslinger? But even in that first reading, uh, once again, if I'm remembering this correctly, and I think I am, um, I remember thinking like, this is a book about a guy whose, whose whole life and, and, uh, and quest or, you know, his whole purpose is to be able to shoot a fucking gun and right off the bat, they take his fingers. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, I recognize the enormity of that. I think immediately, um, even without the context of the first book and it's a ballsy move. It's a ballsy move on King's part. 
It's it's it more was, serious than if they killed a, a major character. It kind of that's what mm. I was going to say. It kind of has that same feel that you come across, or at least I had years later. Like after I got out, there were, there was not a lot of television that I could force myself to get into. I just couldn't really watch it. But every now and then, something would stick, like The Walking Dead. Whenever you're it, seeing or, or reading when Roland loses his fingers in that book, had the, it has the same emotional and psychological impact on you as like watching a favorite character in a show die when you don't see it coming at all. Like they would do right, the right. Dead. Well, that that's actually an interesting comparison because Rick in The Walking Dead is essentially a Roland figure. Mm -hmm. You know, he's even got his cowboy hat, you Mm -hmm. know, he's got his six shooter. Um, And, and, but beyond that, you know, he's a character that has the same fate as, as Roland. He's, he's destined to lose everything he cares about, you know, and and that's something like, and yeah, I'm going to drop, drop a few names here, you know, and I apologize for it. But I, oh, I was boy. lucky enough to, to to go to the set of the pilot of The Walking Dead, and um, I, I'd known Frank Darabont a little bit, and he, you know, I spent some time on the set of The Mist, and he was we at that point we were talking. I was a big reader of the comic book of The Walking Dead, and he was like, "Yeah, I'm doing the show. Yeah, I'm doing it as a show, and like, well, you know, whenever we're we're doing it, you can come out and visit." And and I did, and I remember. I met Andrew Lincoln who played Rick Grimes and, and he like, I, I didn't interview him technically. I was just kind of sitting there. Like he wanted me to talk to me, but he didn't want to be on record. I think they said he was nervous about his accent and he was still working on his accent because he's a British actor Mm -hmm. playing Southern uh, American. And, uh, uh, I, I don't know why that would have stopped him from giving me an interview, but that was the excuse I was given, but it was really great. Cause you know, I, I met him and I talked to him and, and he was really interested in my thoughts because I was a fan of the comic. And he was like, at that point still forming the character of Rick. And he said, he asked me, he said, what, since you're a fan of the books, like, what do you think, um, Rick is. And I told him, you know, basically what I just said about how everything, every choice he makes, whether it's good or a good choice or a bad choice, takes something from him mm-hmm. in the comics. It gets literal. He loses a hand. Right. So it's, but you know, that's what the character is. He's somebody that, that is a survivor, but he loses everything. And, uh, he later told me, uh, I did an interview with him for the, uh, uh, the DVD release of, of the first season. And he told me, he's like, Ho- you know, holy shit. Like, I remember talking to you and it's like, and no, no, no joke. Uh, what you said about Rick solidified him as a character for me. Mm-hmm. And that is like one of my biggest claims to fame. I'm going to like, I'll tell everybody because that's the coolest fucking thing anybody's ever said to me. <laughs> but, uh, um, you know, so I used any, any excuse to, uh, uh, to retell that story, but I think it is actually fitting, fitting here in that, you know, it's funny that you connect to both the dark tower and the walking dead in a similar way. And in, in that you've connected those two. You know, I can see exactly what you're saying. You know, normally I do not, I, I, I just don't get the zombie thing. You know, I realized yeah. for a while it was the craze. They were everywhere. Everybody was talking about zombies. And I always thought of that. I think it was in, in one of Stephen King's books where he tells it, he says, what do you do when the zombies chasing you? walk a little faster. So zombies never were like a scary thing to me there. So even the walking dead, when I first watched that first episode, it was not something that I expected to like, you know, it was something I just thought, well, people are raving about this. I'll check it out. Even though I don't particularly, I'm not interested in zombies at all. What snagged me was the fact that number one, it felt like a Stephen King story. And number two, Rick felt like Roland. It almost seemed like a mashup of the gunslinger and and a little bit of the stand. Like if you mix those Mm. together, that's what The Walking Dead had the feel of to me, which was what drew me to it. Hmm. I wouldn't have thought about it that way, but I I think you're right. I was I was with Walking Dead, uh, the comics, up until I think I read up to issue 100. And then in issue 100 or 100, uh, sorry, that's my Texas coming through. Uh, <laughs> they, where, where they, where they kill Glenn and it was so brutal. 
And I found it so, um, somehow it, it crossed a line for me. Mm-hmm. From too sadistic. Yeah, it was uh, the the. I mean, the previous ninety nine issues weren't exactly a walk in the park, <laughs> um, but but there was something so gratuitous about it for me, where it went on for pages, and you were seeing this guy's skull get caved in, and it was just like, I remember reading that issue and being like, "All right, I'm done with this." Yeah, and uh, I'm not I'm not a person who's who's opposed to seeing violence or. You know, I'm not easily offended at all, but something about it seemed gross to me. And that's where I tapped out. And I've never read them. I haven't read any of the, the graphic novels, the comic books at all. Oh, and I, but all I right. do think that's right around the time also that I probably stopped watching the TV show. It was like you, hmm, yeah. you kind of couldn't believe it whenever you saw it. Yeah, they yeah. did, they did no, do I, that in the show, right? They have, uh, what's yeah. his name? Yeah. Like I, I like I, I tapped out during season two or after season two when the kid was in the barn the whole time. And like you knew that from the beginning, I was like, oh, fucking come on, man. Like this is so I, I guess I <laughs> probably tapped out of the show about two or three episodes into the season three. But but Damien, as a fan of the show, you know, I would absolutely recommend you uh, picking up the the books, because what's really interesting about it is the show is almost like an alternate dimension version of the series like there the norman reedus character doesn't even exist in the books and yeah and like there are people that die in in the first like 12 12 issues of the book that are still alive on the show now and you know and people that you know that are alive in the books that are long dead on the show and Mm -hmm. it's it's a really fascinating uh comparison of of the two similar stories that are told in different ways yeah i'll check those out now we kind of skipped over this. We usually uh, ask uh, our guests about their Stephen King backstories, but we jumped right into the <laughs> the title at right. today. Um, uh, uh, so I want to put a little pause on, put a pin in the Dark Tower, and and talk about like what your first exposure to King was. Like, what was the first book that you read, or did you see a Stephen King, you know, adaptation like a movie? Like, what what was the first exposure, and like what hooked you into the the world of King? I think the. F- first time I was exposed to his work in general would have been whatever year it was that The Shining was in theaters. When would that have been? 80. Somewhere around. I mean, I was really young and I can remember seeing the the commercial come on TV, you know, that like it was just Mm. coming out in theaters and you'd see the trailer on TV. And I can remember thinking, Jack Nicholson looks kind of like my dad and being, being horrified. Like my dad would make some of the same faces at me that Jack Nicholson was making on the commercial just to screw with me. And my, I can remember my mom screaming at him saying, leave him alone, you know, make so he'll stop screaming. But the first, first thing I ever saw, I was too young to realize who he was or what the work was about or anything else. But I can remember being scared by the music and the previews of The Shining. The book nice. would have been, I think, isn't, wasn't it called Night Shift? It was one of the books of short stories in the 80s that I remember the cover of it had uh, a picture of a hand. And there was like a whole bunch of eyes in the hand. Right. Yeah, it was and like it was a mummified hand. It has bandages. It, yes. Yes. That. It's like wrapped in gauze, yeah. Yes, that. My grandmother only read garbage like she only read harlequin romances <laughs> and those those seriously those and those um those horrible papers you know like the bat boy founding cave and uh, i remember one about alice sapiens like half alligator half man found along the banks of the mississippi like she only read those two things and i can remember her bringing that book in she had traded some of her romance novels to one of the neighbors for that Stephen King book. And it laid around the house forever. And there was something about the cover though, just seeing that hand with the eyes. And I was so young that all of it together just gave me this feeling of what the hell am I looking at? I don't understand this. This is like something that doesn't fit into anything about the world that, that I know at this age. I read that book and I can remember immediately it being almost like the first time I ever heard rock and roll music. 
you know, like when I was growing up, my mm. parents and, and grandparents right. only really listened to country. And I can remember first starting to hear rock and roll and thinking, what is this? You know, it was like your, your eyes are opened or you notice something about the world you've never noticed before in a different way. It was like suddenly music had come alive. For me, it was the Stephen King books. It was the same thing with literature. It was like suddenly, you know, I realized kind of a little more of what literature could be, what stories could be, directions that they could take you in. Um, you know, at that point, I really had almost no fiction to even compare it to. So it was almost like my introduction into the world of adult literature was was that Stephen King book. D- did you devour a bunch of King after that? Was that like your your gateway drug it, into it? Is that how you to the point where you know I dropped out of school when I was in ninth grade. Uh, never even went to high school, but uh, you know I started probably skipping school in. Uh, maybe sixth grade, something like that. And what I would do is I would, instead of going to school, I would go to the public library and I would sit in the public library reading Stephen King books all day long. And and (laughs) I I became so familiar to the librarians that every time they got a new one in, they would automatically put it behind the counter and hold it for me uh, so that I could be the first person to read it just because I was there so much. And they, you know, knew exactly what I was wanting. Quite famously, um, you were, you know, the, uh, the original arrest and in your, uh, in, in the original trial, the fact that you own Stephen King books was, you know, part of the offense, mm-hmm. you know, for, for the prosecutors. Do you, do you remember what Stephen King books you actually had on hand? I honestly happened? have no idea at this point. I'm sure the gunslinger would have probably been one of them. You know, most of that stuff, though, it's I honestly can't remember hardly anything of life back then. Um, uh, Part of it is due to, you know, not only was I in prison for 20 years or almost 20 years, uh, but almost half of that was in solitary confinement. And we didn't realize until after I got out, like how severely it had damaged um, some of my brain functioning. You know, for we we started working with a. uh, a neuroscientist who studies they're wanting to do a study now to show like what the long-term effects of solitary confinement are on the human brain, sort of the way the guy did who showed, you know, the damage that NFL players were undergoing, like the, the brain trauma right. they were experiencing. You know, we didn't yeah, realize the concussions. Until, exactly. We didn't realize until after I got out things like I had lost a lot uh, like facial recognition, voice recognition, just because you don't hear a lot of voices or see a lot of faces um, in solitary confinement. So I honestly cannot remember much of any, you know, when I try to remember things, even about prison, much less before prison, it seems like it was lifetimes ago, like literally lifetimes ago. It's like trying to remember or, or, or laying on the bottom of a pond and looking up at the surface and trying to, to make heads or tails out of what it is. You know, most of it is just gone, which in, a, a very real way is a blessing. Um, just, I guess, because who the hell would want to remember that stuff all the time? But you do remember Jake and Oi and yes. Eddie, <laughs> yes, and I Roland and Susanna. That mattered, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so since you had such a, I mean, listen, I bawled my eyes out, you know, in the last few Dark Tower books because I had grown so attached to all the characters um, that are slowly peeled away from Roland. And, but it's, you know, it sounds to me like your attachment to them must've been even deeper. Right. So like, how did those final books affect you in that way? Did you, you know, were you like mourning those characters? Like I was absolutely, you know, it was one of those things that was kind of, it really, it was devastating because like I said, it, it almost felt to me like they had kept me company in prison. They had been with me through everything that I was going through. Um, that was the, their world was one of the main places that I went to, to escape my world, you know, to, to be with them. It it really does feel like you're on this adventure with these people. You're on this quest, you're discovering new places and new things and experiencing all this stuff. And for a few hours, you're not in prison anymore. So whenever you start 
killing off people like that who had saved my sanity, kept me company. I mean, it was absolutely devastating. I actually cried whenever some of those characters were killed off. And I, I remember Eddie's death, the the way King wrote it, mm-hmm. like it's had so deeply affected me. And it, it wasn't, I don't, I can tear up in a movie, uh, but I'm not like a baller. Like I don't, I don't like have the, you know, the, the deep pitching breaths or whatever. And, and uh, I, I've, I've, you know, and movies are my favorite thing. Like I love books, but movies are my favorite thing in in terms of like connecting, you know, empathetically with a fictional character. And, but when I got to the Eddie section, the way everybody reacts to it, the way King writes it, you know, just, I, I remember having that moment where I had to stop reading because I couldn't read the pages anymore. Like the, my vision was too blurry from, from the tears. And, and, uh, you know, I don't know. It, 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 I think that it, it is not just knowing the characters and loving the characters, but also that weird kind of, you feel like an outcast with those characters. Mm-hmm. You're reading the outcast Stephen King series, you know, you're reading the, the thing that, you know, that's kind of niche and feels like it's written for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't know, there, there's just something so personal about, about the dark tower to people who would, you know, it affects uh, as as much as it does us. And I honestly think Eddie was probably my favorite character. Yeah. He's, um, he's, you know, enormously sympathetic despite, you know, his, his addictions and his sort of asshole tendencies and the fact that he's sort of a, a smart ass, which mm-hmm. yeah. always spoke to me because I, I always saw myself in Eddie, you know, I've, yes, I've, I've exactly. struggled myself with, with addiction problems and, um, you know, uh, your mouth being quicker than your brain, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, that's absolutely what, uh, what Eddie is. That was, that was, you know, real tough reading that book. I'm curious when, when you got, uh, incarcerated originally, like how many of the books had you read at that point? One, just the first one. By the time I got locked up, I had read the first one probably 10 times just over and over. And then after I got locked up, I read it, you know, 20, 23 more times. So, so was it really a matter of like, like they had, they had it in the prison library if you had it to, no, to somebody, read the next one or somebody had sent it to me. Um, like one of the things people would do in there, you know, over time while we were there, like more and more people started hearing about the case and putting together benefits and stuff like that. But one of the things that people did was, uh, would maintain a wish list on Amazon of books that I was wanting to read. So pretty much anything that I could think of, you know, whatever topic I was wanting to research or, you know, part of history I was wanting to look into or genre of novels I was wanting to read, um, I would pretty much make a list and send it out and people all over the world would send the books to me. Wow. So you only started reading the rest of the series for like from one on. After you were already in there. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Because like I said, when I first started reading it, the rest of them weren't even out yet. And and I reached a point where I honestly thought there weren't going to be any more, that this is the only one, that he probably gave up on this and went on to work on something that he found to be more lucrative. <laughs> the only real scare I had with that was when he got, uh, when King got hit by the van. Yeah. And I remember, you know, talking to my friends at the time and being like, holy fuck, the tower's falling. Uh-huh. You know, this is it. Yeah. Like it's, you know, we're never going to get the ending of this thing. But you know, uh, how did how did you find out about that actually? While you were in there, like, did uh, the like, other books coming out? No, well, no, King getting um, King getting hit by the van. Oh, just Almost because dying. one of the other things that people would do to to try to um, keep me connected to the world in some way is. People from all over the world, and this is kind of crazy, got me subscriptions to pretty much every single magazine that you can possibly think of. I mean, <laughs> everything from TV Guide to People to you know Architectural Digest magazines. Um, so you know there was a lot of things in there like Entertainment Weekly and magazines that covered like books that were coming out, and and that was one of the things I was like really focused on too is like literature was my world in there. I, it was the only culture. Yeah. It was the only 
learning experience, any of that stuff that I had. You know, I couldn't go to museums. I couldn't go see movies. So, so books were pretty much my world. So I was constantly scouring whatever was out there to see what was upcoming, who was putting new stuff out, uh, authors I may not have heard of yet. Um, I was kind of obsessive about it. We had to uh, rent a storage facility to hold all the books um, eventually just because I was reading on average probably around five books a week, which might sound like a lot, but when you've got that much time on your hands, it was Yeah, easy. for sure. As a fan, did you were you psyched to go see the movie whenever that was? You know, <laughs> oh my god, oh, no. that was another one of those things where you know you almost it was like waiting on Chinese democracy from Guns N' Roses. <laughs> you, know, you, you reach a point where you're like, it's not a real thing. It's not going to happen. Yeah, it would be great to for for something to actually come of this, but I've been hearing about this too long. You know, and, and nothing's coming of it until it almost caught me by surprise. <laughs> and then at first, you know, whenever they started talking about the people they were going to have in it, like Matthew McConaughey and, and Indra Selva, I started thinking none of these people are even remotely close to the images that I have in my head of these characters. So I kind of felt like I couldn't um, attach to them emotionally the the way that I had the characters that I had seen in the books, just because they weren't, you know, they just didn't fit. Something didn't click. But then I started asking myself also, well, who would you want to see play Roland? And honest to God, it's like, you know, I had read that first book so long ago that the only person I could see in my head is like Clint Eastwood in those uh, mm-hmm. 1970s, 1980s spaghetti westerns. You know, like like even Stephen King said, it's like these larger than life figures. And Clint Eastwood kind of had that cold machine like Terminator feel about him in all of those, you know, the spaghetti Western. So it was like that was all I could see in my head. So, you know, honestly, it was almost like I couldn't even give it a chance just because I, I was so invested in the way these characters looked and felt to me that it was it was almost impossible to give somebody else a shot at at portraying them. That being said, I was waiting whenever it came out. You know, I, I was sitting <laughs> there. Thinking, we all. I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, I know this is going to be a shit show, but at the same time, I'm going to be there on opening night. I'm, I'm absolutely have to see this because it's such a huge part of my life. I walked away from it thinking, okay, it wasn't terrible. It wasn't, there were parts of it. I liked that. I didn't think I was going to, but it wasn't great either it wasn't what the series deserved, you know, something of this Mm -hmm. magnitude to me, those books almost feel like a religious experience. And that felt like, I mean, the movie felt almost like a throwaway movie, you know, like a summer, big summer blockbuster, something that everybody goes and sees just to kill an afternoon. I always thought this should not be something that, that just kills an afternoon. This should be something that stands the, the test of time that people should look back on, you know, the way they do with huge classic movies like the Godfather. Yeah. It's small. I mean, that's the, one of the big problems with the, the movie is, is it fits, it tries to fit so much into the narrative. It, it condenses three books in the, in yeah. the one. Yeah into one story and it but does it in a way that just feels small even midworld feels small you know manhattan feels bigger than anything we see in roland's world and that's not how that should feel well i don't Uh, think i don't think you can do this in a feature film you can't introduce like if you were going to do a series of films if i had an unlimited budget to work with Mm -hmm. you could maybe do seven movies and make mm-hmm. this work. If I just absolutely didn't give a shit about box office or making any money off the thing or mm-hmm. whatever, you know, ideally, yes, it's it's a movie for each book. But I think the even better version of that is, uh, you know, like a like a, a top shelf TV series, you know, like an HBO series where it has time to breathe and you have time to sort of invest yourself in the world. You know, you guys are are talking about how small midworld felt in in the movie yeah like it should it should feel enormous mm-hmm. and it just doesn't and um and i agree with damien that it's it's almost it it almost feels borderline disrespectful to the to the text to have it 
have it feel that small. You know, this is a, a Lord of the Rings sized adventure, yeah. if not bigger. Yeah. You know, it, it crosses dimensions and time frames and all kinds of shit. Uh, it's like it's biblical. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And the movie just shrinks it down to to two hours. And uh, I don't I don't I don't honestly hate the movie. I you know, I, I rarely hate a movie. It's a movie. You know, mm-hmm. this movie hasn't burned down my house or, or done right. anything horrible to me. But I do think it's it's the almost a worst case scenario because it's not even bad in a good way. You know, it's, yeah. you know, in a way where you're sort of where it's if like if it were a train wreck, that would be way more interesting to me. Mm-hmm. But my my opinion of it after seeing it was it was so like mediocre and so uh, yeah. flavorless. Yes. Like this this thing should be a, a whole new uh, flavor for whatever audience is watching it who are maybe unfamiliar with the books and it's just not that it's as Damien said, it is, it is the sort of thing you watch in an afternoon and then you forget about a couple of days later. Yeah. Are there any actors out there right now that you could see playing these roles? Like when you think about Susanna and Eddie and Jake and Roland, are there people already out there that you've looked at them and thought, yeah, he would be good for that. For sure. Like, uh, I think, I think, um, in about ten years, I think Hugh Jackman could play Roland. Um, he looks very much. Yeah. He looks very much like young Clint, and yeah. uh, I, I don't think he's quite there yet. He needs a little. Maybe if he sits out in the sun for uh, for <laughs> eight months, yeah. but he, he he's got to be a little more face, a little, a little more leathered, a little a little less uh, <laughs> shaved and and oiled. You know, Regina King could absolutely play Susanna. She was. What is she? Did in? you see the Watchmen series that was yeah. on HBO? Okay. Yeah. Oh, yes, I could see that. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, she I could, could she could do it. I I thought Carrie Washington for a long time for her, um, That's a but good I, I also really love uh, Issa Rae, um, oh, who was yeah, just in the Lovebirds yeah. with Kumail Nanjiani, and I was watching that, and for whatever reason, her character in that like has a little bit of the. Uh, Susanna, I like, but like, you're right. I think that Regina King could pull off because it's what's fascinating about her is that, you know, Susanna's a combination of two personalities. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I think that Regina King would have a fucking field day with the Detta Odetta uh, split personality thing and, and then could totally sell the mixture of the two being the, uh, you know, the final form of, of that character. Right. You know, yeah, no, that'd be awesome. Damien, how did you feel about uh, Roland being cast as a black man with Idris Elba? Well, you know, it's one of those things at first. First thing I thought was that just doesn't fit at all. And part of the reason was because, you know, in the series, there's like this whole like racial component to the or, or mm-hmm. plot component that revolves around the fact that Susanna is the only black character. So you're going into all this stuff like her dealing with the world and, you know, like in her version of New York, she comes from this uh, like horrific time in the civil rights period. And and for me, that was like a big plot because it allowed you to see into all these other, not just New York, but all these other New Yorks, all these other, you know, U.S.s. So you saw into her time and all the the racial stuff from, from her period. And then you saw you know, like into Eddie's time period and in Jake's time period, I think whenever you made Roland a black character, you kind of stole a lot of her spotlight. I can see that. But um, I also think that there's a way to navigate around that. You know, if if Susanna is um, in Drawing of the Three, mm-hmm. if she is suspicious of Roland and Eddie and you know um in the in the book it's it's because they're they're white you know and and she's had a life where that she's lived that's um you know been dominated by by white oppression i think you could do that with uh with a black roland just by having her consider roland sort of a sort of a traitor to the race I could see that you know? too. Yeah. And that and that, that, yeah. and that's how you work around that. It's a very easy workaround that it, any writer worth his salt or her salt um could absolutely do. I think I I you know, if if the first if the first fucking movie had been any good, you know, maybe we could have got there, but um Yeah. He wasn't bad. 
you know, whenever you watch it, you come away from it thinking, okay, I can see why they chose him for that role. And, you know, he does kind of fit certain aspects of it. So it, it wasn't like he was a terrible, terrible choice. I honestly thought Matthew McConaughey did not really fit at all as the man in black either. Yeah, he played him too much like Snidely Whiplash, and like if he, if he, uh, but but like but clearly like I I love the idea of casting him, and I was actually really excited when he was announced. But uh, you know, but that's because you know I'm I'm bringing in all the baggage of uh the other personas of the man in black right the randall flag and yeah, yeah, yeah. flags of, of the world and you know it's like like he he's a perfect randall flag yes. w- whether or not he's a perfect man in black i'm not sure if he's you know uh, if he quite captures that um kind of weirdness yeah. yeah man in black is a, a, a different thing than randall flag they're the same character but i, I see what you're saying yeah. like yeah you know, um, once Randall Flagg is being like full Randall Flagg, he's he's almost a, a Loki like character. Right. Yeah. You know, he's he's sort of a, a trickster. So the, the scene in the Dark Tower where McConaughey shows up wearing a fucking apron and he's like cooking right. chicken or something in someone's kitchen. It's like 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 I get that. Like I get yeah. that this is ultimately what the p- character becomes. And, and I can see how you arrived at this, but for the average audience, they must've been like, this is clownish. Mm-hmm. Like this is the big bad of the movie. He's literally wearing an apron and cooking chicken in someone's kitchen right now. Yeah. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. Well, that's like my favorite, my favorite scene of his in the movie though. That's the one that felt the most right where he's, he just feels untouchable and he's like, he's so sadistic in those scenes where he's, you know, he's uh, telling people to kill themselves. And it's like, there are little touches here or there. Like, and they even put it in the trailer. Like when he walks by the, the sigil of the um the crimson king and he just like knocks on it mm-hmm. as like like that that is a perfect like like yeah. kind of you know man in blackism where you know he's this i'm trying to come up with a word it is he, he treats everything seriously but also not it, it, i guess you're that is the more kind of loki mm-hmm. uh thing that you were yeah. talking about to where yeah. you know but he just he unfortunately just plays him too goofy the entire thing and they give him so much really terrible exposition yeah. that he has to he has to say so i mean i don't i don't blame mcconaughey too much you know he, he at least he swung for something there and and i think uh, elba uh, idris elba like is at his core has the tenets of what roland should be he has the toughness he has the steeliness of you know uh, of it and he also has the the charm and and um magnetism For sure that, you know he draws the eye when he, they walk into the camp you know it's like that you know that 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 is something that you need for that character you need to have an air of that mythological you know hero in the eyes of a lot of the people in midworld and and um and he had that but yeah it's yeah the whole thing is just you know i, I don't know we can we can drag on the movie a lot but i think the the most damning thing that we've we've talked about is that it is it's just forgettable and and uh this should have either been you know a, a ship going down in flames and you know gore verbinski you know pirates of the caribbean <laughs> yeah. you know indulgent later you know sequels or whatever where shit's just weird and you're just like you're gonna buy it or you're not you know it should have either been that or you know a, a long form miniseries like game of thrones that would just very much build the audience and you know into that world do you think you anybody know, else over will time. ever take another crack at it or do you think that was it was that the nail in the coffin or will it be resurrected in some form. It's tough, man. It's just, uh, we had Glenn Mazzara on the show and he was doing the, um, uh, Amazon series. The, it, it, the, the dark tower was going to be an Amazon, uh, series that started with wizard and glass and then moved, uh, they got all the prequel stuff out of the way and then moved on, you know, later seasons would get into gunslinger and the main story. Um, and he had a really great take on it. Uh, but even that, like it went to pilot and the pilot exists and, and, uh, that's it. You know, then they canceled the show. So I, what he told us was that somebody will make it someday. Uh, it's too, it it becomes the dark adapting. The dark tower becomes the dark, the dark tower for creative people. Right. It's like they're rolling on the quest to trying to get this impossible thing made. I think that a lot of people are going to take stabs at it, but the, you know, as we've talked about, 
it's too it's you can't do this on a small scale it it has to be lots of money and and uh if you take the money to sacrifice the weirdness you know uh and the you know just the kind of off kilter bizarre tone of it then there's what's the point of making it right yeah. so i think that that's kind of the rock and the hard place that the series is is caught caught in between i think they'll get around to it eventually i think that some streaming network or or hbo or somebody will eventually decide like oh this is so this is a genre series that combines like western horror sci-fi like it's got a little something for everybody and all we need to do is is give it the right budget cast it correctly and you know not hire um hire a dipshit to to make it i don't i I don't think the guy that directed uh nicolaj arcel i don't think he's a dipshit to be clear with the movie i think that movie is the result of studio meddling at at an extensive uh state which is you know common for sony and i uh, you know and i think that the the cast of that they, they had the pieces to to make it if you look at the dark tower movie element by element, there's very few things wrong with the casting or the way it looks or, or those sort of things. They get a lot of little details, right? But the, but the script failed them. And if you have a script that fails you, and then you have a, a, a filmmaker who is sort of beholden to a studio, that's going to strong arm you through the process, which is my understanding of what happened. This is the result. You get a movie that is uh, designed by committee and it pleases no one. Yeah. But I, I think let off the chain. Absolutely. The the Dark Tower will will live at some point. And Gore Verbinski's The Dark Tower is what I want to see. I My pitch is an HBO series and a different director does each season and each season is one of the books. And in my mind, you get Jonathan Hillcoat, the guy that did The Road or... Um, uh, the proposition, which is my favorite Western, yeah. you get that guy for season one. That's the gunslinger, and then you get another guy or, or woman for for uh, for season two, and so on and so forth. And so it's sort of a mixed bag, just yeah. like the you know the the series is, and you you get those different flavors in there. I, ideally, well, it would it, even it, look different from season to season. Well, I, I got a couple things to add to that. One, um, since you brought him up, Guy Pierce for a long time was my pick for Roland, and I think now he would even be yeah, he'd be uh, good, be, be even better. Who is that? Guy Pierce was the star of the proposition. He was in Memento. He was the lead in Memento okay. in the nineties. A 90s. lot of times, I don't know actors' real names. I only know them. Yeah, like who they yeah. are. Okay. But he's got the he's got the that those steely bombardier blue eyes. He he looks a lot like the illustration of Roland in um, uh, drawing of the three, uh, the Phil Hale um, thing, where it's like that close up of like his grinning mouth or whatever. Do you, I don't know if you remember that where he's kind of got the long face. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, but the second thing is to your point, Scott. Like I think that one of the reasons why. Uh, that's such a compelling idea to have everything look different is that's my experience reading the books because yeah, each exactly book had illustrations and each, il- each one with the exception of Michael Whalen doing the first and the last one, each one were their own distinct styles. Bernie Wrightson style was different than, um, you know, Phil Hale style. And it's, uh, uh, you know, each one had its own unique visual look to it, which you're not used to uh, with mm-hmm. book series. Each one should be its own. Each each season of the show I'm imagining should be its own surprise, more mm-hmm. or less. Yeah, you know, you should be you should be constantly um, caught off guard by this thing. You know, that's the that's the spirit of the Dark Tower. Yeah, like right up through right up through the very end. Uh, I think we're getting close to the close to our time. Uh, Damien, is there anything that you want to plug? I think uh, I mentioned the intro, but you have a, a a book coming out, right? Yes, it comes out on July 14th. It's called Angels and Archangels, A Magician's Guide. And unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to do a book tour this time to uh, promote it and you know do a signing just because of the lockdown situation uh, going on right now. Um, but you will still be able to find it on Amazon, barnesandnoble.com or anywhere else that fine books are sold. 
what, what's the book? What's the book about? Like, what's the is, what's the quick sell? Uh, ceremonial magic and just the role that angels and archangels have traditionally played in that, and sort of how they're not um, what people generally think of them as being. You know, they're not even a Abrahamic concept. You know, not just property of like Judaism or Christianity or Islam. These are uh, intelligences that have always been tied into celestial phenomena like the intelligences of the stars uh, and rituals to invoke these that um, lead to being a, uh, th- they further our uh, progress towards self-actualization. We're sort of merging our higher selves and our subconscious selves with our normal everyday consciousness to become a whole functioning, healthy human being. So what you're saying is that is that uh, one's one side's the Deta and the other side's the Odetta. Yeah, that's a good we, way we to come put out. It. Yeah. That is a really Susanna's good way to end. put it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just out of curiosity, Damien, are you are you in touch with the the other two members of the West Memphis Three? No, these not days? none whatsoever anymore. We've just sort of went our own way and and living our own lives. Um, and, it, you know, recently I even decided, like, I even stopped doing interviews about it anymore. Well, you know, we still have people like true crime stuff and all kinds of thing, you know, stuff like that, asking us all the time to do interviews about the case or whatever. And it's just like, there's nothing to, to say that hasn't already been said. You know, it's just just the same stuff over and over. And I thought this is really kind of just kind of st- stunting my development in a lot of ways i guess <laughs> yeah you know, being at a certain point you can only relive things so many exactly times. yeah and it's like what's the point you know what's the point of dwelling on misery and and you know people think that we all like grew up together or spent 20 years in prison together or something but you know it's like with, with both of these guys like i i didn't even see them for for almost two decades we haven't even known each other since we were children essentially um but in you know most people in that world's minds we're almost like this unit like not even individual personalities i can imagine that being the case yeah i don't talk to people i went to high school with exactly yeah (laughs) you know like (laughs) people hit me up on facebook sometimes and it's like someone i haven't talked to in 20 years and you're like fuck man there's there's so much to get caught up on that it's almost not even worth it. Like, what are we going <laughs> to, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, I'm going to type all this out for you to say, Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And then, and then you to do the same. Exactly. And you're like, Oh, that's cool. And it's like, yeah. does it really like, matter? Yeah. It, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, sweet man. Thank you so much for, for joining of us, course. man. It's been, it's been real of fun course. talking about, yes. Uh, about the dark tower yeah. with you. Thank you guys for having me on here. It's been fun. And that was our episode on the gunslinger with Damien Eccles. Uh, man, that, that was kind of nuts. Kind of, um, kind of man. Uh, before we recorded that episode, I had to like sort of pull Damien aside and just be like, listen, I just got to get this off of my chest because I don't think I can talk to you like a normal person if I don't say it. And, and told the guy that, you know, I grew up watching the paradise lost documentaries and, Never in a million years did I think I'd have any reason to speak to that guy, much less about, you know, the 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 dark tower. You know, this life is really weird sometimes. Um, but man, I really feel for that guy, and um, it was just a pleasure to talk to. Yeah, no, he had some, you know, a great perspective on on it. Very unique perspective. Uh, obviously we didn't really go very deep into the gunslinger itself. Uh, it was more an overall dark tower conversation. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure that at some point we will be going, uh, fairly in depth book by book, but, uh, but that day has not come yet. You know, those, yeah. I mean, those will have to be like bonus episodes, right? You know, because they're, they haven't really, adapted and they haven't done it yet you know so we're, we're gonna have to just keep coming up with angles so we can do dark tower episodes but uh i don't think we're gonna have any problem with that well luckily they fit like 17 uh, dark tower books even ones that haven't been written into the movie so we can always say that into the it's movie crazy somehow. it's crazy uh so next week's gonna be a really uh fun episode i think um, yes do you do you want to tell the people 
What's what? Yes. Um, next week we are doing Pet Cemetery. Eric is correct. It is a fun episode. Um, you know, our chat with Damien was a little bit more on the uh, somber and serious side, uh, which, you know, is not surprising. You might think a Pet Cemetery episode would be also kind of somber and serious, but uh, we have a lot of fun with it. And our guest is a good friend of mine. She is a published author and she's a big horror fan. There's sort of a, a there's a bit of chaotic energy to this to the Pet Cemetery episode that um, I think people are going to enjoy. I hope they do. Um, but we had a hell of a time recording it. Yeah, no, uh, I believe this uh, episode introduces the soundboard that the yes. podcasting. Uh, the podcasting service that we use to record uh, all these different people while everybody's on lockdown. Yeah. uh, Comes with, and uh, we haven't really played with it before and, and we get uh, some fairly inappropriate usage (laughs) of of some sound effects. (laughs) We, we got this many episodes in before we realized like, Oh, we can make this sound and this sound. And uh, yeah, we have a little bit of fun with that. It's, it's, it's a, it's a, just a messy, chaotic, uh, episode of the show. I, I was listening to the raw raw audio from it the this morning, and it's good. It's good. I think people are going to like it. I'm happy with it too. It'll be a fun episode. So we'll see you guys then. See you guys. 